Chapter Eight of the Statement of Stella Maberly by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. The day fixed for the wedding, which was to be early in September, came nearer and nearer. Presents poured in, arrangements for feasting Hugh Dallas's tenantry and the Winston school children and poor were discussed and decided on, and though I could not help being aware of all this, I remained passive somehow i could not persuade myself that this iniquitous union would really take place one sunday morning however the fancy seized me that i would go to church once more and try whether i might gain some little comfort and strength to endure my daily and hourly temptations and the torture of my nightly ordeal and for a wonder i had been allowed to go though not without mrs maitland as a keeper and spy over me for a time the familiar rhythm and wording of the noble liturgy the rise and fall of the intoning and the hearty ring of the responses exercised a soothing effect upon me i felt safe and comparatively at peace content to trust the future in the hands of the god whom we were imploring to have mercy upon us and who seemed so near and so ready to listen to our prayers just then and then suddenly i heard that which aroused my drugged conscience and convinced me that action and not weak cowardly resignation was required of me the rector was publishing the bans of marriage between hugh dallas and evelyn heseltine for the third time and as he uttered the solemn adjuration to any of us who knew cause or just impediment why these two persons should not be joined together in holy matrimony to declare it i realised that this appeal was addressed to me alone and that if i neglected it now i should be answerable to heaven for my silence so the moment the rector's voice ceased i rose i forbid the bands i cried i know of a cause which makes this marriage unholy in the sight of god and i am ready to declare it the rector's face assumed a look of consternation that was almost ludicrous he had only just been appointed to the living and probably my face and identity were as yet unknown to him for the moment he seemed at a loss what to say and there was an audible stir and murmur among the congregation at length he said i cannot hear you now uh, come to me in the vestry after service mrs maitland scarlet with flurry and distress was plucking at my cape and i sat down quietly and the service proceeded as usual but i heard nothing of it nor of the sermon that followed for my mind was occupied with the disclosures i was pledged to make and the effect that they would produce all too soon for me this sermon came to an end and the congregation was dismissed there was the scroop of the benches on the pavement at the back the breath of cooler air as the doors were opened the clatter of the choir-boy's boots heard above the tones of the organ all eyes were turned on me in passing and the two church wardens held a whispered conference with mrs maitland in which i gathered they were advising her to take me away and offering to make some explanation to the rector i refused to listen to her entreaties to allow her to see the rector privately first or accompany me to the vestry and when she saw that i was perfectly calm and determined to carry out my intention unhindered she gave way the church was empty now though a few inquisitive persons still hung around the porch and presently a little round-eyed chorister came down to tell me that the rector was ready to see me so leaving mrs maitland on a seat in the chancel i went into the vestry alone 
Canon Broadbent, the rector, was a churchman of the suavely ecclesiastical type, portly and of goodly height and appearance. He received me with a grave courteousness, though I could see that he was displeased and anxious to get through what he evidently felt would be a painful interview. "'I will hear anything you have to tell me,' he began, "'though you must see, my dear young lady, how wrongly you have acted in disturbing the service of God, and turning away the thoughts of his worshippers. Nothing but the gravest necessity can justify such conduct.' "'You called upon anyone who knew any cause against that marriage to declare it,' I said. "'How could I remain silent, knowing what I do know?' "'Reverence, common decency should have prompted you to wait for a more convenient occasion,' he said. "'However, if you were really impelled by some overmastering sense of duty, and if the reason should prove sufficient, you may be held excusable.' but let me warn you solemnly before you say a word of what you have come to say of the wickedness of attempting to blast a young man's character and future by any charges which you are not fully prepared to prove many a man has been guilty of indiscretions of which he sincerely repents later which it would be cruel to rake up against him in order to prevent him from ever leading a clean and reputable life think then whether your motives are indeed pure and high or whether in accusing him you are influenced by some mean unworthy feeling of which you should feel heartily ashamed and if conscience tells you that it is so let your charge remain unspoken oh you're quite mistaken canon broadbent i said i bring no charge against mr dallas oh, for all i know his past may be quite stainless and a man's record would have to be black indeed before the church would refuse to celebrate his marriage with the most innocent girl but it is not a case of that here and yet i begin to see how hard it will be to make you believe my story you cannot possibly mean to imply that miss heseltine he was beginning i tell you that if you knew who and what she is who passes as evil in heseltine you would be the first to say that this marriage is too impious and blasphemous to be sanctioned by any priest these are strange words he said uneasily i would gladly hear no more but my duty compels me to ask you to explain them if you can first let me ask you a question i said do you believe that an evil spirit may be permitted to enter into a human body Oh, really really he said i cannot discuss such a subject with you let me beg you to keep to the point or i cannot allow you to remain here i am not wandering from the point i am coming to it does not the new testament tell us of devils being cast out of men and suffered to enter a herd of swine is that true or false Oh, we must not apply too literal an interpretation to what is figurative or mystic he said and once for all i decline to be led into these unprofitable arguments now do you or do you not know any reason which renders miss heseltine 
a young lady who from my slight acquaintance with her seems to be endowed with every good and endearing quality an unfit person to contract holy matrimony and by reason i mean such reason as the law of the land would compel me to recognise anything less is a matter which i do not feel called upon to inquire into and which i shall refuse to listen to if the law permits a man to go through the mockery of marriage with a devil incarnate a fiend in human shape will the church perform such a ceremony i said i declare to you canon broadbent as i hope for mercy and pardon hereafter that the real evelyn heseltine is dead she died in her sleep weeks ago and the body she has put off for ever is now inhabited by a lost soul some foul and evil spirit which has taken her form for its own vile purposes oh, you do not believe me i see that and yet the faith you hold bids you to believe that such things were not only possible but actually happened not once but again and again in the past why should you reject my story now as incredible he shielded his face with his hand for a moment when he spoke again his voice and manner were completely changed oh my poor child he said if i had had any idea of this i should not have spoken so harshly i pity you from my heart it is dreadful to think that you should be haunted by such a delusion as this will you try to believe me when i assure you that it is nothing more it is simply the effect of ill health a disordered imagination overwrought nerves i saw that his hand was shaking and his mouth twitching that he avoided looking me in the face i'm not ill i said i am as well as i could hope to be under such persecution as i have had to bear day after day night after night and my mind is as clear as yours canon broadbent i think my nerves are the steadier just now i did not come to you for pity i want help counsel have you none to give me i can only pray for you he said pray that god may see fit to remove this cloud from you but you yourself must do something too to prevent these ideas from preying upon you lead as active a life as you can try to take up some pursuit work play anything but brood and by and by very soon i trust the sunshine will come back you will recover your mental tone and see how morbid and imaginary the terror is that now seems so real and vivid all words i said empty phrases do you really suppose they can help or comfort me i loved the evil in heseltine that was loved her dearly little as i did to show it is it likely that i should imagine or invent this hideous thing about her or that i should loathe and dread her as i do unless i had been given the strongest cause i know that i am under no mistake and in your heart canon broadbent you know it too you do believe my story only you dare not admit it for fear of the consequences you clergymen are cowards after all when you come upon the devil you profess to fight you prefer to turn aside and let him go his way unhindered 
he did not attempt to answer me but opened the door that led into the chancel and called to mrs maitland i think he said to her you had better take your friend home at once and if you have not already called in medical advice it might be advisable if this mental agitation does not pass off soon poor young creature she is greatly to be pitied he lowered his voice but i heard every word distinctly i am indeed to be pitied i said when the priest who represents heaven here delivers me over to the powers of hell my shaft went home i know but he merely bowed his head without reply as he accompanied us down the nave and through the churchyard to the gate where our carriage was waiting for us and mrs maitland and i drove back through the deep dusty lanes in silence for both of us i dare say felt that any speech was dangerous just then evelyn met us as we entered the house how late you are she cried what can have kept you so long i looked her full in the face and i saw by her eyes that she knew or at least guessed that i had made one more attempt to defy and thwart her we are late i replied calmly because i forbade your bans and i had to explain my reasons to canon broadbent afterwards in the vestry she started as if my courage took her by surprise as probably it did i don't understand she said innocently oh stella what have you done i can't believe it oh, you couldn't have done this ask mrs maitland i said as i passed up the staircase and before i reached my room i heard evelyn's low weeping what could i do against such black hypocrisy how could i hope to overthrow an adversary who had all the forces of the world the flesh and the devil at her disposal i did not go down again all that day and for many days afterwards i kept my room the reaction after the scene i had gone through the sense of utter failure and defeat and the dread of the consequences proved too much for my strength the doctor came and talked oracular platitudes about nervous breakdown and the necessity of absolute quiet and freedom from excitement or worry until i could have screamed with rage at his bland incompetence but even he did not venture to pronounce me mad for canon broadbent had been discreetly silent about the denunciation i had made in the vestry and my action in forbidding the bands was no doubt accounted for by some private jealousy i knew that consultations and discussions were going on and that some pressure had been put upon evelyn to send me home to my family or have me placed in a home where i should be under supervision though i gathered that she had insisted on my remaining at tanstead for the present she was more perfidiously affectionate and attentive than ever she paid me frequent visits during the day and studiously avoided any allusion to my outbreak while my nights were no longer made a misery to me by her secret persecution i almost began to think that she had relented at last seeing how completely she had triumphed and how feeble and how powerless i had now become but i deceived myself this clemency of hers was only apparent she knew that i was not strong enough as yet to feel the full effect of her devilish tortures and she did not intend to lose her victim until she had forced me to witness her final triumph on the night before her wedding day she came to me once more in her bridal attire so lovely a vision that i was dazzled by her unearthly beauty 
but the eyes that gleamed through the transparent veil were as baleful and malignant as of old and the soft lips dropped an even deadlier venom than before into my poor tortured brain for she talked of hugh as he was now self-respecting wholesome-minded unsuspicious hopeful of a long and happy married life with a companion who was his ideal of goodness and loveliness and what he would become through her disillusioned perverted and degraded loathing his bondage and yet unable to resist her power over his senses acquiescing sullenly and cynically in his own shame and disgrace she hated him now she said because he had loved me first and might perhaps come to love me again but i should never profit by it after to-morrow he would be hers and in a very short time i should be a prisoner within the impassable walls of an asylum with lunatics and idiots for my only companions and love happiness and hope shut out of my life for ever she told me how she would bring hugh to see me the wreck of my former self my mind shattered my beauty perished and how he should learn that it was love of him that had made me thus and she reminded me that i had brought my misery on myself that if i had only restrained my groundless morbid jealousy of the girl who was dead if i had only interfered when there was yet time to prevent her from taking that drug all would have been different instead of the wretched unloved conscience-stricken woman i was now i should be lying peacefully asleep or waiting in happy wakefulness for the morning to break which would bring my wedding day there was more than this which i dare not repeat and nothing i could say would give any impression of the awful wickedness the ingenuity of cruel invention and suggestion which made these taunts so appalling i cannot believe that even the guiltiest sinners in hell can be subjected to worse mental torment than she forced me to endure that night it was terrible to feel that i was the object of such a deliberate and intense hatred at last even her malignity exhausted itself for the time but long after she left me i lay tossing and writhing under the stink of those poisoned whispers until it faded out into merciful sleep and the dream which came to me was not frightful but tender and pathetic i thought that evelyn the real evelyn who was now in heaven came and sorrowed over me and comforted me assuring me that she understood and forgave me and would willingly help me if she were allowed i thought she told me not to despair that evil would not triumph for ever or perhaps for long that my term of punishment was drawing to an end and i woke crying for joy with the touch of her hair upon my cheeks and the pressure of her loving arm about my neck and though i knew it was nothing but a dream it left me strangely strengthened and consoled that morning was to see hugh's marriage and yet my heart was lighter than it had been for many a day i found myself hoping once more as the hours passed i heard the bustle of preparation and knew that evelyn was being made ready for the ceremony that she would soon follow her bridesmaids to the church i believe she actually came in to see me before she left but i feigned to be asleep and she went away softly 
gradually the house became still most of the servants had probably gone to see their young mistress married the nurse who attended on me had gone downstairs after locking my door as if she thought i was likely to make my escape it began to strike me that it was a considerable time since i had heard the carriage drive away surely before this the wedding bells ought to have pealed out if nothing had happened to interrupt the marriage and all at once i understood what this hope was that had come to me so unaccountably i knew that it was not without some basis there were things that even devils dare not do i remembered that evelyn had not attended church for some weeks not i was almost sure since the change would she venture now to cross the threshold of god's house if not her terror must betray her as an unholy being even to the most incredulous the rector would remember my warning her spells would be broken the church was not so far away but that the bells when rung could be distinctly heard across the fields i went to the window and leaned out holding my breath and straining my ears in the direction from which the sound should come i heard nothing but the whir and the click of the reaping machine among the corn the calling of birds and the lowing of cattle i waited until i could doubt no longer something had prevented this monstrous marriage i fell on my knees and thanked god fervently entreating his pardon for having supposed that he would suffer his temple to be so desecrated and as i rose there was borne on the breeze faint but unmistakable the ripple and clash of wedding bells they were married she had entered god's house knelt before his altar and he had not interposed perhaps there was no god and if there were it mattered little for the devil was master in this miserable world the last thing i was conscious of that day was the clang of those triumphant derisive bells which seemed to be battering my brains into a throbbing pulp End of chapter eight